with me in your Bibles to John 4 this evening. John 4, we will be looking at verses 43 through 54 in John 4. As we step back into this chapter of Scripture, following our study last week on the Samaritan woman, there is a very strong and clear contrast that is being painted between verses 1 through 42 and verses 43 through 54. Now, this contrast is very intentional on the part of the gospel writer. It's there, and it's there for a reason. It's supposed to, and very much does, emphasize to the reader just how blind and proud the people of Israel were when confronted with the truth of God's word. And it is a contrast which, while when we read it, it is not too surprising to us, we would expect to see the nation of Israel blind to God's word through Jesus Christ. I believe we would be absolutely amazed if we had witnessed such blindness ourselves. The people of Israel heard the law of God often. They regularly went to the temple for feasts and for observances. They had the testimony of God all around them. They had heard stories of God through their feast days and through their holidays. They saw the holiness of God as they observed and and uh, took part in, for some, the temple sacrifices. And even the temple itself, which was patterned after the Old Testament tabernacle, was in fact an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. But for all of the truth of God that surrounded Israel, when truth came, incarnate, in the form of Jesus Christ, most of them rejected it outright. And many of those who did accept Him did so only after seeing physical manifestations, physical proofs of his authority, particularly through miracles. And in contrast to that, you have this people that we learned about last week, the Samaritan people. Now this group of Samaritans, as we learned last week, had been steeped in pagan perversion of worship for hundreds of years. They hated God's people, Israel. They rejected God's law in part, at least, and they confused God's commandments. Yet, as we recall, when the truth of God came in the form of the person of Jesus Christ, the, the truth incarnate, these Samaritans heard the teachings of Jesus and they believed. It is significant in John 4, 1 through 42, that Jesus Christ did no miracle before the Samaritan people. He spoke to the Samaritan woman. Certainly he prophesied of who she was. He, he told her all things that, that she had ever done, as she claimed. The people came to him, and it says, when they heard him, they believed. The entire point of those 42 verses being there is to show us that this pagan Samaritan people heard the teachings of Jesus Christ and accepted them on faith, whereas the Israelites, the Jews, the, those in Judea, those in Galilee, needed to see proofs in order to believe. This is the contrast that the scriptures desire us to understand. This is why the chapter 4 of John does not end in verse 42. I've often wondered why, why does the chapter end where it does? 
Now, there's a few portions in Scripture where I lament where a chapter ends and the next one begins. But to be quite honest, if I were breaking up Scripture, I would have stopped chapter 4 at verse 42. Chapter 5 would have been 43 to 54. Chapter 6 would have been chapter 5 and so on. But when I did the study and I realized this contrast, I recognized why it was that the verse division or the chapter division is where it is. Because verses 1 through 42 are so clearly intended to be contrasted with verses 43 through 54. We will understand through this contrast, and we step into the historical events, and through these things we will be warned. Warned that sometimes, get this, sometimes the people that have the most difficult time coming to the point of true belief in the truth for salvation are those people who have been exposed to the concepts of religion their whole life. Those people who have been surrounded by so much truth that they become callous to the truth and sometimes end up missing it altogether. And so this evening we're going to remind ourselves of some of the enemies of saving faith that might linger a bit closer to our church doors than perhaps we might be comfortable with. Three enemies of true belief that confront those who are surrounded by truth is what we will be looking at this evening. Look with me, if you would, in John 4. We'll begin in verse 43. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee, speaking of Jesus. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee... The Galileans received him, having seen all things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. The first enemy that we see in this passage is the enemy of reception. The enemy of reception without true belief. Now we pick up our account account with Jesus leaving Samaria and finishing his journey into Galilee. You recall the reason why he intended to go to Galilee to begin with. That was in the beginning of John 4. Jesus left Jerusalem when he heard the Pharisees were stirring up or questioning John in context to his baptism and Jesus Christ's baptism. Now, verse 44 here gets a little more specific. Jesus testified that a prophet is not without honor or hath not, no honor in his own country. The word honor there is well translated in our King James, but might more literally be translated value. This is the same word that's used to describe those 30 pieces of silver that Judas received when he betrayed Jesus. Judas counted those 30 pieces as the value of betraying Jesus. It is often in scripture literally translated price and is best described as the amount that a person esteems as being worthy of exchange. So the amount that a person values something is the amount to which something is worthy to be exchanged with it. Value is a somewhat subjective reckoning in every sense of the word. The value of something is based upon numerous factors. My wife has on her left hand a wedding ring. That wedding ring is made of gold and it is made of a diamond. Now, that wedding ring, of course, has a value to it. You can Take the gold and based upon the price of gold, you can estimate how much gold it has and how much that would be worth. 
you can take the diamond and based upon the how big the diamond is and how pure the diamond is and how beautiful the cut is of the diamond, you can then place it in a price bracket. And so if I were to take that, that diamond ring into a jeweler and say, what, can, what would you give me for this? They would take the price of the gold and they would take the value of the diamond and they would put that together and they would assess the value of the ring accordingly. However, to me, that ring and to my wife, that ring has more value than just the price of gold and diamonds. That is the ring that my father placed on my mother's hand when he asked her to marry him. It is also the ring that I placed on my wife's hand when I asked her to marry me. And so intrinsically, because of the sentimental value that rests within that ring, to me, that ring has far more value than simply the cost of gold and the cost of the diamond. This verse tells us that the people in Jesus' own country, those of Judea particularly, esteemed him and his message of very little value. The message of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, in their subjective understanding had very little value. Now we would look at that same message we would look at that same man and we would recognize the inestimable value of Jesus Christ. And yet they gave him no honor. He was without honor in his own country. But the fact that the Jews did not esteem Jesus as a man of honor does not mean that they did not receive him. Though the leaders in Jerusalem did not receive him, yet the Galileans did in fact receive him. The men of Galilee had been at the Passover feast. They had seen the miracles which Jesus had done and they were quite content to have this man in Galilee healing the sick and healing the lame. But as we have seen and as we will see again, the fact that people follow Jesus Christ or even the fact that as the scriptures say, they receive him does not at all imply that they believed on him unto eternal life or trusted in the truth that he preached. It simply meant that, he, that they appreciated his philanthropy. Just last night I was talking to a lady. And as we were talking back and forth. We came up with the conversation of uh, worship. And uh, she was attempting to convince me. That ecumenicism is a good thing. And that as we cross denominational lines and we, we all come together, that this is a good thing. And, and I understand that there is an importance of unity among God's people, but certainly we have principles of separation found in God's word. And the way that she tried to convince me of this is she said, I think back to the time of Jesus when he would have 5,000 people following him. She said, we don't see those kinds of crowds today. We don't see that unity of people just following Jesus. And the conversation was cut short and that was a, a bit regrettable because, to be honest, if we look at the times where the multitudes followed Jesus, we understand from the context and from Jesus' own testimony that many of those who followed him were not believers. They came because he was healing the sick. He was healing the lame. They came because he gave them bread. 
You recall after Jesus Christ fed the multitudes and he went over the Sea of Galilee, the people followed him. And when they saw him again, Jesus Christ specifically told them, you did not come unto me because you believed on my message. You came unto me because you were hungry. And he condemned them for following him for false reasons. And so too, we see so often in this world that culture follows Jesus, receives Jesus, but doesn't believe in Jesus. There's a temptation among those, particularly in our culture today, our church climate, to receive Christ's moral teaching and to use it to the benefit of our lives without humbling ourselves before the truth of his message and thus believe unto eternal life. You say, Pastor, what do you mean? What do you mean the tremendous benefits of receiving Jesus or following Jesus? Well, let's consider some of the benefits of living like a Christian in this life. Let's consider some of the benefits of taking the precepts of God's word and applying them to our lives, even if we're not believers in the truth of God's word. Living a life patterned after the life of Christ would mean a life of temperance. It would mean that you wouldn't be a drunkard. You would keep your debt manageable. It would mean you would live a life of honesty. You would obey the laws. You'd play by the rules. It would mean a life of modesty, that you would have humility in life and humility in action. It would mean a life of kindness, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. It would mean a life of generosity, taking from your own hard-earned money and giving it to the less fortunate. As we think about all of those virtues, we realize that none of those virtues are exclusive to Christians. But those virtues are, in fact, virtues of our Lord Jesus Christ. In a culture where the benefits of associating oneself with Christ and exhibiting the characteristics of a Christian is popular, we see entire churches of men and women who have received the teachings of Christ, who have followed Christ and yet have never believed on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. And so we see the first enemy of true belief, the enemy of reception. These Galileans received Christ. They received him into their land. They said, certainly come, heal the lame, heal the sick, feed us. We love it. But did they believe? Let's look at a second enemy of, agree- of, of belief this evening. The enemy of agreement without true belief. The enemy of agreement without true belief. Look with me in verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. We now go with Jesus into Cana of Galilee. Now you remember Cana of Galilee. This is the city where Jesus turned the water into wine. His first miracle was performed in the Cana of Galilee. The fact that Jesus is back in Cana of Galilee could insinuate that Jesus did in fact have some relatives there. He did have family there perhaps, family ties or whatever the case may be, or perhaps he just found his way back to Cana of Galilee. 
While he is there, verse 46 tells us that a certain nobleman came to him who had a sick son in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a city that we are already familiar with as well. Capernaum is the city in Galilee where Jesus and his mother and his brothers and his disciples went after the miracle of Cana in Galilee. This um, city was fairly close, as we've mentioned before, to Cana. We can presume, based upon this context in particular, as we will see in verse 52, we can presume that it was less than a day's journey. This man, this nobleman, will ask Jesus to heal his son. Jesus will say, thy son is healed, and the nobleman will go directly home. Now, the nobleman approaches Jesus and asks him to come and heal his son. His son is at the point of death. Jesus' response is somewhat unusual. Look with me at verse 48. Jesus saith unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Now, we're going to talk about the uniqueness of this statement in our next point. For a moment, I'd like to go a little bit further in the context, further in the account, and consider it together. Following Christ's statement, the nobleman again asks Jesus to heal his son. To which Jesus responds in verse 50, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And notice what it says in verse 50. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. The man believed here, but as we will see in the verses to come, the nobleman's belief was not belief unto salvation. It was belief that Jesus was powerful and that he could do what he said he would do. It says here, he believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him. What was the word that Jesus had spoken to him? It was this, go thy way, thy son liveth. He believed those words and he went his way. And thus we begin to see our second enemy of true belief that can plague those who are surrounded by truth in this life, those who are religious in this life. There are many people who believe that Jesus Christ is God. There are many people who believe that Jesus is powerful, that he worked miracles, that he died for the sins of the world. There are many who, if Jesus was walking again on this earth, would go to him for healing for a relative, would go to them for healing for themselves. But simply believing that Jesus is what he claimed to be does not qualify a person to be a recipient of the gift of salvation. The gift of salvation is given by God to those who humble themselves before the truth, who align themselves with Christ, who turn to Christ, who accept his person and his message, therefore believing on Jesus unto eternal life. So it was with this nobleman, as he believed Jesus and went his way, he believed that Jesus could and possibly did even heal his son. But he did not yet believe on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. He believed in what Jesus was able to do, but did not place his complete faith in Christ. You say, Pastor, wait a minute. How do you know? Are you judging his heart? How do you know that this nobleman was one of those who believed what Jesus could do, but did not believe on him unto salvation? Well, two reasons. The first reason is found in verse 48. Jesus told the nobleman, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. He hadn't yet seen the sign and the wonder. Second, in consistency with Christ's statement, 
The scriptures clearly record a second act of belief after the nobleman found his son to be healed. Let's look at that together in our final point. Look with me in verse 51. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. I take you back to Jesus' statement in verse 48. He said, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. This statement was very confusing to me when I first read it. Is Jesus rebuking this man, I thought? Is he rebuking the nation's tendency? If the man didn't believe, would he really be asking Jesus to heal him? What is Jesus doing here? How is it that the man comes up and says, Jesus, my son is sick, come down and heal him. And his response is, unless you see a sign and wonder, you simply will not believe. Now to make this even more confusing, we have verses 49 and 50. In verse 49, the nobleman reiterates his request that Jesus would come and heal his son. Jesus responds in verse 50, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the nobleman's response to this statement was that he believed and he went his way. So what's Jesus Christ saying here? He says, Except ye believe, excuse me, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. And this is our third enemy this evening. The enemy of needing tangible evidence for true belief. The enemy of needing tangible evidence for true belief. How is it that Jesus Christ said, except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But when Jesus said, go thy way, thy son liveth, the man believed and went his way. I thought Jesus said that he wouldn't believe unless he saw signs and wonders. He just took Jesus' word for it that his son would be healed. He accepted Jesus' claim. He went back to Capernaum. So what did Jesus mean then when he said, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Well, notice first of all with me that he says, Ye will not believe. He didn't say, Thou willest not believe. So we understand that Jesus Christ is speaking in the plural. You all will not believe. Jesus Christ is generalizing here and he's generalizing the Galileans. He's generalizing the Judeans. He's generalizing the Jews that they would not believe unless they saw signs and wonders. He was making a statement of the tendency in Israel's heart to withhold their belief until they had tangible proof of Jesus's deity. But Jesus was in fact rebuking this man as well telling him that he would not take that final step of belief unto salvation unless he saw some sign or wonder that convinced him. And this is exactly what happened in verse 51. As the nobleman nears Capernaum, his servants tell him that his boy was healed. But this wasn't enough for the nobleman after all. It may have just been a coincidence. So the nobleman asks, I've got to ask, what time was it that he was healed? I have to know what time was it. And they told him about the seventh hour yesterday. Day, about one o'clock in the afternoon that your son began to amend. And that is when the nobleman recognized he knew 
that that was the time where Jesus spoke to him. And it was at that point that the nobleman believed and his house. He believed once he had tangible proof. Now perhaps what's going through your mind is what was going through my mind as I was writing this sermon. Pastor, but he did end up believing here, so what's the problem? Why call the need for proof, the need for tangible proof for true belief an enemy if he got the proof he needed and he ended up believing? Well, the reason why I call it an enemy is because of this. What if Jesus had not given him proof? Jesus would have been perfectly within his right to leave the man without the proof that he sought. Jesus could have demanded that the man believe him by his word alone and not have given him the healing proof that he sought. Jesus would contend against the same type of tendency among the twelve disciples. You recall that there was one of the twelve disciples named Thomas, Didymus, who had, has received somewhat of a dubious nickname in church history. He is Doubting Thomas. This unfortunate nickname goes way back to the time after Jesus Christ had died and risen from the grave where the ten disciples were uh, in the upper room and they saw Jesus Christ. Thomas was the eleventh. He was not with them. Of course, the twelfth being Judas Iscariot who was dead. Thomas came back at a later time and the ten said, we've seen Jesus in the flesh. He appeared to us. It's him. He's alive. And Thomas said, I will not believe unless I see him, unless I place my hand in his side and in the holes in his hands. And so Jesus appears to Thomas. Do you remember what Jesus told him? Jesus told him this in John 20, 29. Thomas, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. There's another circumstance that we can think of in church history, many in fact, but another one, a man named Saul, you might have heard of him, who was on the road to Damascus when Jesus Christ physically confronted him. Saul was so zealous for the Jews' religion that there is no way, there is no way he ever would have accepted the truths of Jesus Christ without something so drastic as the glorious appearance of Jesus Christ before him on the road to Damascus. God knew, however, that if he did manifest himself, Saul would choose to believe, and so he went out of his way to prove himself to Saul. This is wonderful. This is beautiful. God is perfectly within his right to do so. And so he appeared to Saul. He appeared to Thomas. These two, God appeared to them and helped them in their belief. But God is by no means obligated to prove himself in these ways to mankind. There are many in this world who are waiting for proof before they will believe on the name of Jesus Christ. They want something tangible. They're waiting for something that will convince them with their eyes, that will convince them with their minds that God is real, (coughs) excuse me, that Jesus Christ is who we claim to be. Now, it would, I believe, be short-sighted of us to state that God would never give this sort of proof, for He does, and He has, and perhaps He will again. We've heard people tell us stories about 
how they tell God, if you will get me out of this situation, if you will get me out alive, I will believe. They are saved from that situation. They go on to learn and to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their path was diverted by this crisis in their life where they were asking God to save them or to help them or to deliver them. And when God did so, it was a crisis that compelled them towards the truth and they found the truth and they believed. But God is not obligated to prove himself physically to anyone. God is not obligated to respond to man's ultimatums of belief. We have God's proof all around us in creation. We have God's proof in God's word. We have God's proof in our conscience. It's written upon our very hearts. God is not obligated to appear to us. This is why the man who believes, having not seen, is the man who is blessed. And this is why I can confidently state that the demand for tangible proof is in fact an enemy of true belief. Because if we are waiting for tangible proof, perhaps it will come, that would be wonderful, but what if it doesn't? The enemies of true belief. We've looked at three of them this evening. We've looked at the enemy of reception. Receiving Jesus Christ appreciating what he brings, but not believing on him unto salvation. We've seen the enemy of agreement, recognizing Jesus as God, but not accepting him and making him your God. And we've seen the enemy of tangible proof, needing some tangible evidence of God before you will believe on his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this lesson from John can help us in two ways. First, it can help us identify with particular people and the enemies that they are struggling with in their own belief. When we recognize that a person is struggling in that they have received the person of Christ, but they have not believed on him, or we recognize that they agree with who Christ is, but they have not truly believed, when we recognize that these are in fact enemies of true belief, that these are dangers, that these can throw a person off the path, it helps us minister to them better. But second... It is an opportunity for us to search our own hearts so that we as church people, many of whom have been around church for some time, perhaps we who have taken God's word for granted at points can search our own hearts. Now, I don't want to cast any doubts in our hearts. Satan does a good enough job of casting doubt in our hearts. I don't need to be up here behind the pulpit casting doubt. But it is healthy for us to know that we believe. To see the fruit of our belief. And to know that we're not just resting upon being good people, but upon the word of God. What a contrast we see in John 4. A contrast between the people of Judea, the people of Galilee, and those of Samaria. The people of Samaria came to Jesus, they listened, and they believed. But these people who had the law, who had the ordinances, who had the temple, who exercised themselves in the sacrifices, who went to the feast days, they went to the Passover, they went to Pentecost, they went to the the Feast of Tabernacles, they observed the Old Testament law, they did the prayers, they did the rituals, they did all of these things, they had the, the yearly Day of Atonement, All of this, they had so much and they were so close to the truth that when the truth came incarnate, they missed him. 
They completely missed him. And that's the warning of John 4. If you want to theme John 4, John 4 is the contrast between belief and unbelief. The hurdle that must be taken among those who feel like they are so in line with the truth that they have in fact missed the truth. Let's allow these lessons to pierce our hearts this evening. Allow the Holy Spirit to apply them to our hearts, to become wiser in our understanding of what the Word of God is teaching us, to become wiser in our understanding of the nature of mankind, to not take for granted that people are believers simply because they speak the name of Jesus, to not take for granted that people are believers simply because they've received Him, simply because they appreciate Him, simply because they feel like they are following the character of Christ. Belief on Jesus Christ is when we humble ourselves before that truth. And the fruit of that belief is the indwelling Holy Spirit, the earnest of our salvation until the redemption of the purchased possession. Let's close in prayer.